Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show, giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Hi, welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR. 855am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. My name is Lauren and tonight on the show I'm joined by Brainwaves team members Amber and James and we're going to be talking about the legal aspects of mental health. We're joined by Sophie Hose from the Independent Mental Health Advocacy. Thanks for coming tonight Sophie. Thanks for having me. Okay Sophie, James here. Uh, What is the Independent Mental Health Advocacy and what kind of services do they provide? So Independent Mental Health Advocacy, or IMA for short, is a mental health advocacy service for people on compulsory treatment orders. So um, our role is really to support people to make and participate in decisions about their mental health treatment if they are subject to compulsory mental health treatment. We're quite a new service, so we haven't been around for very long. Um, We opened our doors on the 31st of August, and we're very closely aligned to the new uh, Mental Health Act that was passed in Victoria recently, Um, and there was a recognition that being subject to compulsory mental health treatment is quite a disempowering experience and that for those people to be involved in decisions about their mental health treatment the support of an advocate can be really beneficial. So the Victorian government committed to funding a new advocacy service for people subject to compulsory treatment in Victoria and so that's how IMA was born. Great. And uh, Sophie, can you tell us what is your role at the IMHA? Yeah, so um, I am a senior advocate working in our Dandenong IMA team. Um, So IMA is a statewide service. So we have four teams dotted across the state. Um, So I work in uh, Dandenong with uh, two fantastic advocates based out there. Um, And then we have um, some other teams um, based in Melbourne, uh, Bendigo and Geelong. Um, And so the idea is that um, we can work with anybody who's subject to compulsory treatment across Victoria and one of our teams can respond. Okay. And... um Can you give us an example of a situation that someone might find themselves in in which IMHA could step in to provide help? Yeah, I mean, the reality is that uh, our work is really diverse and people are in lots of different situations when they contact our service. we work with people who are um, uh, on uh, what's known as a community treatment order so they are subject to a treatment order but they might be living at home and they might be accessing mental health services in the community um, but then we also work with people who are are detained in hospital so they're under a, um, a treatment order which requires them to actually stay in hospital to receive that treatment um, and so though uh, 
for those consumers um, that we do work with in hospital, um, the kind of issues that we might support somebody around, um, again, they can be very diverse, but um, quite a common issue that comes up in our work um, is um, people having access to uh, some form of what's known as leave. So that's really when you're... Um, you know, required to stay in a mental health ward, um, but you might want to leave that ward at some point to, you know, go and access service in the in the community or um, visit friends or family. Um, and so we might advocate for somebody in that situation um, to the treating team, to the doctors, to um, to support that person to make those requests for leave. Um, another very common issue that our advocates work on um, is around medication. So um, uh, psychiatric medication um, can um, have um, side effects for some people. It can um, be something that people feel very strongly about in terms of what medication they would like to take. And so people quite often contact our service because they might want some form of a change to medication or they might also want to change how they take that medication. So some people might be um, taking that medication um, by depot injection and mm. they might find that quite invasive and want to um, move to taking that medication in an oral form, so a tablet form. So that's a kind of an example of some of the kind of issues that people might contact our service with about and then we would go and support that person to um, go and really make sure that their views and their preferences about their treatment are being heard by the treating team. Okay. And... Uh under the new Mental Health Act, can you please give us a brief overview of the rights people with a mental illness have? Yeah, I can have a go. I mean, the reality is that, is that it's a, a big piece it's of huge. law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's there's lots in there. Um, but what I could maybe focus on, which is probably, um, you know, of interest to your listeners, would be um, the... Um, what we call the supported decision-making mechanisms within the Act. So that's really around how are people um, supported to be involved in decisions about their care? What rights do they have in that context to, to um, you know, have control and choice and autonomy over their mental health treatment? Um, so um, in terms of how the how the act ensures that people are really kind of front and center of decision making around their mental health treatment how that practically happens um is that first of all the the mental health act spells out a number of what are called mental health principles so these are um legal duties that are placed on mental health services to um, deliver mental health care that's actually more respectful of a person's rights. So it says very clearly that um, services should involve people in decisions about their treatment. It says that they should deliver um, they should deliver mental health services that respect people's rights. Um, it's they the principles spell out that uh, mental health services need to respond to people as individuals, recognizing that actually we're all quite different and that, uh, you know, the experience of, um, uh, you know, a young person on an inpatient ward might be quite different to um, somebody who doesn't speak English or whatever, you know, the situation is. So responding to us as individuals um, and also delivering care that is um, least restrictive. 
mm-hmm. which is really important. So the idea of um, care being delivered in a way that's least restrictive of a person's rights. So the mental health principles are um, they're set out in the Mental Health Act and they send a very strong message to mental health services about the way that mental health services should be um, being delivered and places a, a legal duty on them to follow those principles. And then there are also a number of other things within the Mental Health Act um, that really are about supporting consumers to um, have a say over their treatment and to retain a degree of choice and control, even even when they're having a compulsory treatment yeah, order. So, yeah, yeah, which is really important because actually. Um, just because you're under a compulsory treatment order doesn't mean that your views about your treatment don't matter. And I think for some people it can feel like that. It can feel like, you know, I'm being given treatment, you know, against my will, I want that treatment, and therefore, you know, my views are just being completely disregarded. And I think it's really important for people to remember that actually your views and preferences about your treatment are still really important in that context and they shouldn't be being ignored. And you were talking about earlier about how IMA can use uh, their service as a check to make sure that that's happening. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so I think that um, so um, I think that our, the IMA advocacy service is really um, some people have described it as a you know almost a, a communication tool that can be used by by consumers and also by services to sometimes facilitate that process of somebody's views and preferences about their treatment mm. being shared. Um, sometimes it you know the relationship between a treating team and um, a consumer might might have broken down for some reason and it might be quite difficult to get those messages across and I think that um, I'm a advocacy can play a really important role in sh- making sure that consumers views and their preferences are being heard by treating teams but also on a kind of more systemic level is that I think the service can also um, you know help push for a a mental health system which is more respectful of people's rights and um, you you use the words kind of act as a bit of a check and I think that that's important Mm. making sure that people are being consulted about their treatment they know what their treatment plan is they feel involved in those decisions Um, so I think our role um, you know as advocates is really to to be there as kind of witnesses in some way to make sure that people are are having that experience of services that's really happening yeah because sometimes the translation between the law and what's happening in the service can be a little bit different as well yeah and i think that that's a that's a really important point because the mental health act was passed in 2014 so it's actually in kind of lawmaking terms a very very young mm. piece of law um, and it's still it's still sort of bedding down and it's still kind of um, yet to be really understood I guess by services and so I think that hopefully um, IMA can help with um, supporting services really to um, to follow um, follow the act and make sure that they are actually providing services in a way that actually complies with the mental health act and really puts the consumer kind of at the heart of decision making. Mm. Well, that's excellent. And um, just out of curiosity, how many people are under a compulsory treatment order? So mm. um, there's a, the, the the figure that's talked about, although um, I think can be disputed, like most statistics can, um, is that there's roughly ten thousand people subject to compulsory treatment in Victoria at any one time. Um, so yeah, that's quite a few people. I mean, I think the important thing to say is that 
the vast majority of people who access mental health services do that on a voluntary basis mm. so there is a, um, a preference for voluntary treatment and that will always be what is preferred um, and should be the you know the, fir the first route should be that people access services voluntarily putting somebody um, on a compulsory treatment order is something that should really be considered a, a last resort and so it is a minority of, of consumers who mm. would be ever placed on a treatment order yeah Welcome back, Sophie. Welcome um, back. <laughs> hi. So um, we were just talking about compulsory treatment orders before, and I was just wondering if you could um, go into a bit more detail about what kind of legal rights people have when they're under those treatment orders? Yeah, I can definitely do that. So um, I talked earlier before the break about the kind of... Um, the general principles that the Mental Health Act places on mental health services to deliver uh, services in a way that is more um, respectful of people's rights. Um, but there are a number of what are called um, supported decision-making mechanisms within the right, um, in, within the Act, um, which are really sort of practical tools to support consumers to um, ret retain a degree of, of choice and control over mm -hmm. their treatment. So I'll just talk through them briefly, some of them. Um, so um, in the Mental Health Act, uh, people who are subject to compulsory treatment would have a right to um, request a second opinion um, from a different doctor. So mm. if they feel that um, the doctor that they're seeing and the assessment that has been made is not something that they maybe agree with or feel is, um, is kind of right in their situation, um, they could um, request a second opinion from a different psychiatrist. Um, and that's something that they have a legal right to under the Mental Health Act and mental health services have a duty to try and facilitate that process. Um, consumers also have the right to draft what's known as an advance statement. Mm. So an advance statement is a, um, it's, it's a document, it's a piece of paper which sets out what somebody's treatment preferences are um, and it can be a really useful way for people to set out exactly what they would want from their treatment if they were to become unwell and if they were to be subject to compulsory mental health treatment. Um, and that can be really important because um, in those sort of crisis situations where somebody might be brought into an inpatient ward and they might be quite unwell it may be difficult to communicate those yeah. things so um, actually having that written down can be really really helpful um, and there would uh, be a, a duty on the treating team to consider that advance statement in any in any treatment plan so they, they need to look at what that um, what that person has said that they want and the idea behind behind advance statements is really acknowledging that consumers are experts in their own mental health and so they quite often they they know they know yeah, yeah. so they know um, what what medication has worked for them in the past and what medication hasn't um, they might have certain um, you know things around their treatment that they want to specify that they know can make their experience of, of say being in hospital much better or much worse mm. um, so an advance statement can be a really, really useful way of setting out um, the kind of treatment that you would like to see from mental health services. How is that done on a practical level? Like if yeah. it's a document, who does, 
who gets it and how is that accessed then? Yeah. For information? So um, an advance statement can be written at any time. So as long as you um, understand what it is and you understand the consequences of, of making one, then you can draft an advance statement at any time. And it's not... Um, it's not a difficult process. There's quite a lot of information available um, on the internet about how you might go mm. about drafting an advance statement. There's actually some really good information on the IMA website. So really encourage people to look at that if they were thinking about drafting an advance statement. And in terms of what the advance statement actually looks like, um, there are template forms on um, the um, the DHHS website, so the Department of Health and Human Services. Department of Health and Human Services have quite a useful section of their website called the Mental Health Act Handbook mm -hmm. and they have some um, template forms for an advance statement so that kind of really just it talks you through how um, what you'd need to, yep. to set okay, out and put pen to paper really um, but people would also be very welcome to contact um, IMA if they would like to have a bit more information ex explained to them about that process and um, that's something that we're really happy to talk to people about and just out of curiosity too like how um how does that order or the oh, sorry mm. the, the document that they set out impact their treatment like does yeah. it really affect how their treatment decisions are um, made so um there is a legal duty on um on the treating team to to look at the advance statement and to consider mm. that within um, treatment decisions. It's not legally binding, so mm. it, it's not a document that means that when you sort of once you draft it, that's it. That will definitely be your treatment. Um, there might be some circumstances where a treating team have to take a different course with your treatment, mm. and that that could be justified. Um, if they decide to to not follow your advance statement then they do have um they have to set out the reasons for why they're not doing that in writing okay, so like a justification yeah, for why like they deviated a justification from yeah mm. so what that really does is that it sort of puts the onus back on services to be very clear about the reasons why they haven't been able mm. to follow that person's advance statement and sometimes that in itself can be enough because it really sort of scrutinizes that decision making really and it makes sure that um, people's advance statements aren't just being ignored because it's not very convenient for the service mm. or um, you know because it might because their treatment preferences might be more time consuming or whatever it is um, so I think that's quite good that there is that um, provision within the act that says that people if their advance statement can't be followed that they should be given reasons for that and those reasons should be put into writing yeah Oh, that's really good. Um, I was just thinking of an example before, like how, well, you know, a lot of people are against ECT. Some people are for it mm. as well because it can be really helpful. But um, lots of people talk about how fearful they are of mm. having that treatment without their consent. And so I imagine this kind of um, process of setting up what you would like beforehand would be really helpful for that. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a really helpful, um, you know, process to go through if you have quite strong views about certain types of treatment mm. because it would be a, a a really practical way to make sure that the treating team knows that that is your, your view, your <laughs> view. Um, and you know we work with um with consumers who um have received ect treatment or have contacted us because it is, is a concern of theirs mm. um i mean as a as a service we wouldn't have a, a policy position on ect because that's not 
that's not our role. Yeah. Our role is really around whatever that consumer wants, whether that is that they are strongly opposed to a treatment like ECT, or um, we've also worked with consumers who um, have found ECT to be a really effective treatment for mm. them. So, And some people prefer it to medication. Yeah, so exactly. So if that's in their documentation, it yeah. would be helpful, I imagine. Yeah, and yeah. so it really is about, um, you know, our role is really whatever that consumer wants, making sure that those that voice is heard and that voice is amplified and that can be done through things like an advanced statement but also you know with the support of an IMA advocate because that's really what we do is that we sit down with consumers and we work out exactly what it is that they want from their treatment and if they are having particular issues about their treatment then we can go and um, support them to discuss those issues with their treating team um, mm. so yeah and who has access to IMA's services who has access to IMA? So IMA is a service for anybody who's subject to compulsory treatment in Victoria. So um, anybody who is under a treatment order, um, that could be inpatient or community treatment order, they can access our, our service. Oh, great. And where can they find information about IMA? So um, there is loads of great information on the IMA website. So that is www.ima.vic.gov. <laughs> <laughs> AU. And then we can also be contacted via our inquiry line, which is 1300 947 820. And that number, um, we have an advocate on that phone from 9.30 to 4.30, Monday to Friday. Well, great. We'll put those um, details on the podcast site as well. Thank you very much, Sophie. So thanks for listening. That's all we have time for in tonight's show. A special thanks to Sophie for coming in and talking to us all about the work of IMA. You can listen to podcasts of our show on, at brainwaves.org.au. And if you have any feedback or show suggestions, please contact us at brainwaves at myfellowship.org. That's all we have for Brainwaves today. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another week on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.